Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take up a variety of topics, including compliance and ethics, the Wells Fargo scandal and criminal accountability, uncertainty around CCO certification, COVID and the future of work, and a variety of other topics. I know you will enjoy this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Welcome to Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast with me, Christy Grantart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and we are ready to talk all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG, governance, and whatever else is on the minds of us and the other experts in our field. This week, we're covering the jail time for a Wells Fargo exec over their compliance scandal. What happens when CCOs have to certify programs, bribery stories in Russia and China, the Italian Data Protection Authority shutting down chat GPT and whether compliance concerns are indeed going to come to the metaverse. Hmm. Hello, Tom. How has your week been? And what do you think is the most important development? Well, wow. I have to say the most important development was the first former U.S. president to be criminally indicted. So I have to go with that as our all-encompassing, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to leave that for others. But I was interested in a client alert from our good friend Jonathan Armstrong at Quarterly Compliance about the Italian Data Protection Authority banning chat GPT. There was not, um, I didn't think, a really good set of reasons other than children would have access to chat GPT. Um, children have access to a lot of things. And they could see a statue of... David by Michelangelo. They could (laughs) see a Confederate flag. They could see lots of different things. But the Italians chose to to ban chat GPT. And actually, Christy, I thought this harkened back to a time in 1830 England where the Luddites reigned in the Midlands to try to stop the progress of machines. So I really saw it um, in, in that light. I just think that flat banning of chat GPT is taking away a hugely useful business tool to the Italian business sector. And if others in Europe follow this, I think it will really set them back in many ways and cut them out of a very powerful tool in the world business economy. You can use chat GPT for a lot of things. I'm sure it could be abused. Nevertheless, I think the Italians, if they really have concerns really should have a more targeted or focused approach instead of banning something that is really, truly, if not revolutionary, several evolutionary steps down the road, and they need to rethink their approach. Look, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I I read Jonathan Armstrong's article, which was excellent, by the way. I mean, you know, I know he's our friend, but it was terrific. And I thought their reasoning was actually really interesting. I mean, ultimately, under GDPR, you, you have to give people notice 
of how you're going to use their personal data. And I guess personal data is, you know, defined as anything that identifies an individual and chat GPT doesn't really have the ability to tell you where it's aggregating its information from. So I think they have a very small point, but I do think it's a small point. And I think it will be fascinating to see if this kind of takes on its own Max Schrems energy to mess with the world's data transfer, or if it's an outlier and they all get themselves aligned to say aggregated information. Though I thought Tom's, uh, John's most interesting point, Jonathan's, was that his recommendation, if you're creating an AI-based application, to remember that uh, website material, even if publicly available, can still be copyrighted. And if ChatGPT is stealing stuff that it's not supposed to, that it needs to be careful with that, or if you're building something AI-based. So I don't know. I think this one is definitely a TBD, and we will see what the rest of the Europeans do, if anything, on this pretty controversial idea. So for compliance officers, Wells Fargo is the gift that keeps on giving. We could go a myriad of ways. Mike Volkoff (laughs) went to town on this. I don't know if you saw his blog post, but we have some pretty big uh, news around the fraudulent accounts scandal. What did you see there? Well, I just briefly looked at Mike Volkov's blog today where he started with, there will never be a greater corporate scandal machine as Wells Fargo in our lifetime, which, you know, it may be hyperbolic or not. I'm not, we'll find out in the next decade if anyone can top them. But uh, this is one of those rare cases where we actually see jail time. So this article that I was looking at comes from Reuters, and it relates to the massive scandal, as you said, that took place between 2002 and 2016. The sales associates and branches were under tremendous pressure to meet what was described as obscene sales goals or face being fired. So employees, as they do when you incentivize something, took to, frankly, illegal means. So they created fake accounts. They pressured customers into opening accounts they never asked for. Sometimes they didn't even know they existed. They opened accounts requiring only an email address. So employees registered fake email addresses. It was kind of amazing to go and read about this. And if you haven't, you should. So Wells Fargo itself paid $3 billion to settle the federal criminal probes. But no one had been held criminally responsible until now. So the former head of Wells Fargo's retail bank, she is facing up to 16 months in prison under a plea agreement that was filed last month. Her name is Carrie Tolstedt. She's 63 years old and faces a $17 million civil penalty as well. That will hurt. The comptroller of the currency said that she was, quote, significantly responsible, end quote, for the widespread abuses at the bank. So I think it's pretty interesting that people like the former CEO who was barred from working in the bank industry was never prosecuted. She's the only one. I guess, Tom, it's really great to see someone held accountable for these types of things. But do you think it's enough? Does it move the needle? Do you think there'll be more prosecutions? What is your sense about this? Well, uh, it is incredibly rare for a bank officer to be held criminally accountable. So on the one hand, I thought, you know, it was a a step forward for that. Perhaps it will move the needle because compliance officers can point to her plea agreement. Um, But in given everything Wells Fargo did wrong, and I mean everything, uh, this most recent fine other outside this scandal was around money laundering and sanctions. And so they've really failed 
as Mike pointed out, they've hit the full grand slam um, for fraudulent conduct. But at least we got one held accountable. I guess that's where I kind of shake out. Yeah. Well, speaking of leadership, <laughs> I think you're up next. Yes. So um, CCO certification. This was announced a little over a year ago. It has been debated, discussed, and continued to be debated and discussed. And Matt Kelly wrote a great article for Navix on this, where he posed some really interesting hypotheticals. And I'm just going to read some of these. If you and the CEO disagree over the health of your compliance program, who settles that dispute if you have to certify? If you join a company in the middle of a DPA, and as we now know, Ericsson is in that situation, can you review or even redesign the existing compliance program, which led to the prior CCO leaving? Can you ask for DNO insurance to protect you from potential legal costs if you certify it and it's determined the certification is in, incorrect? Uh, what if this company declines to provide you that? And what if you can't certify? Do you quit or what do you do? All great questions, all questions we don't know the answer to. We will have to just wait and see what happens when CCO certification actually happens at the end of the DPAs. But I was also pretty gratified that Matt just said, guys, it's time to double down on your program. And that means some of the basics, risk assessments, um, using your risk assessment to put a risk management strategy in place, monitor that risk assessment, uh, upgrade as appropriate, use data analytics, don't just collect it, but use that data to provide insights for upgrading your program when appropriate. Uh, Third-party risks are even more important than they've been, and they've always been the most important thing. And it's not simply on the sales side of things. It's who are your suppliers? Who are your customers? Who are anyone you're doing business with? And accounting controls. Weak accounting controls are perennial set of risks. When was the last time you actually did a gap analysis of your controls measured against either the COSO framework, the 10 hallmarks, or rather the hallmarks on an effective compliance program, or any of the other formulas? So it's time now to start that process. Don't wait till you are in an enforcement action, but it's really a lot of different um, questions and we just don't have the answer to right now. I love what Matt did with this article. I love it. I think that he posed such interesting questions. And I, I do think that to a certain degree, the fear element has been overblown in our industry because there will be so few CEOs and CCOs that end up in the situation at the end of a DPA having to certify. Um, but I don't know. Do you think that this will become some sort of a best practice and sort of a normative thing when you're not under a DPA? I mean, what do you think might happen? I think one thing that if we can generalize that we have seen in 15 years is when the DOJ starts something, it moves throughout the industry and uh, really every level. And I think right now, CCO certifications are limited to companies who have signed a DPA. Uh, we haven't had an NPA yet where certification mm. has been required because we haven't had an NPA. Uh, and I think it's going to creep down uh Certification was required by Sarbanes-Oxley in financial controls, and I think we'll start to see that now move to becoming an extraordinary practice, 
to a best practice, to a regular practice, to table stakes. Yeah. No, I I think that's really interesting. And just acronym alert, NPA is a non-prosecution agreement. DPA is a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, Go ahead and look those things up if you're not sure what that means. So going from one regulator to the next, we're following up on the saga of the SFO, which is the serious fraud office in the UK. Tom and I spoke about the UK's challenges on our last podcast. If you haven't heard that one, please go ahead and take a listen. But one of the places people are listening is in the UK government. So our next story comes out of the Wall Street Journal. Um, And recently, the SFO defended the agency dropping a long running case due to deficiencies in the law when it comes to the capacity to review evidence and, of course, of the sophistication of the SFO systems. So the UK government is putting their money where their mouth is, and they are hiring 475, that is a huge number, of financial crime investigators and have committed to changing the law around the corporate crime and the ability to get evidence. Uh, So the three-year plan calls for $495 million, or the equivalent of that, in pounds to be spent at several government agencies and 100 million pounds spent on investment in data analytics and other technologies to help law enforcement. So what I found interesting about the Wall Street Journal article was that it pointed out that it's important to note in the UK that it is very difficult to keep corporations on the hook for employee misdeeds. Under many circumstances, the company can only be held accountable for corporate crimes if upper level management was involved. And here's the important part, had criminal intent. The lawyers in the room, Tom and I both go ding, ding. That's a hard thing. The government proposed passing legislation that would change the application of that legal doctrine and are also going to modernize the process by which prosecutors disclose evidence to criminal defendants, which was the reason they had to knock out that case after 10 years of working on it recently. So Tom, what do you think? So do you think the government heard the criticism on our podcast and decided to change their strategies? Do you think that's what happened? You know, actually I do. And I think you're close in about relationship with the serious fraud office, your work in England, your marriage to an Englishman. I know. I think we're all factors <laughs> that Definitely. The, uh, the UK government, not that the SFO took into account. And oh yeah, I think there's probably some other commentary It may have influenced their decision, but I wholeheartedly applaud the UK government for seeing the deficiency. It is, um, you know, the Russian oligarchs, property in London, whatever you want to call it, the shell companies, company house, all of those issues. They see this as a huge hole or gap and they've stepped in to fill it. So kudos to the UK government for seeing a problem and, and moving in a way that I think will pay off for not simply the UK government, the, but the worldwide fight against bribery and corruption, money laundering, and those other types of fraud that, that really rob the world economy of needed money. Yeah. I think that one of the interesting things is I, they seem aligned, although they didn't say this, with Biden administration sensibility that the sanctions issues, the Russian issues, that they're they're national security issues. And I, I think that would probably be part of the informing of why they're doing this. So for our next story, I picked one, which was, have workers given up on the office? And this comes to us from a story in Bloomberg. And I have to say what attracted me to this was the writer, Sarah Green Carmichael. 
For those who don't know, Sarah Green Carmichael was the founder, founding host of the Harvard Business Review podcast. And I listened to Sarah Green Carmichael for years. She was a fabulous journalist, great interviews. And whereas Chrissy and I are very knowledgeable in compliance, and I feel like we can talk compliance with anyone, Sarah Green Carmichael was talking to world business leaders the way Christy and I are talking. And so she really had a very unique perspective. She's left that position. And now in this article, uh, I think she's spot on. I think COVID, I don't think COVID deaths, I think the pandemic changed our relationship to work. I don't think it was, um, I don't think it's generational. Millennials may have a different view as my daughter said once, pajamas, not just for the office anymore. Uh, but I, I've i worked from home since 2010, and I'm very comfortable with that. And you can do almost as much. Um, and the freedom and flexibility it gives you, I think people, once they got settled in and COVID and got their sort of home offices set up, found out that I can work and I can work effectively. And there's no need now for me to go into the office three days a week and get on Zoom calls with everyone else. And I mean, uh, Spark Consulting works on literally a worldwide basis with a widely dispersed workforce, and you guys deliver a truly superior product. Uh, so it can be done. It can be done quickly and efficiently. I, I think COVID did, in large part, change our ideas. And you know, many people left the workforce. Many people... Um, now have a different relationship. Uh, many people said, you know, I'm going to quit at five. Um, and uh, I think COVID really was one of those linchpin changes. And I hope employers will understand just how things have changed. But change brings opportunity. And managed correctly, I think you can be just as efficient uh, working remotely. I think you guys have proved that. I hope I have over the years. And Sarah Green Carmichael is right. Uh, COVID did change it. I'm not sure it was COVID deaths, but I will say COVID did change our relationship to work and how we deliver a truly superior product. I thought her article was fascinating because when I started reading it, you know, its title, of course, women, of course, workers have given up on the office. I kind of thought that it was going to be focused around all the reasons going into work and wasting your time is frankly, a useless endeavor. But her perspective that, you know, we've changed as a society, I think in the US especially, and not worshiping work like church, which I, I also thought was interesting. I've read some commentary around that as well. I mean, I lived in London, as you stated, for nearly a decade. And the Londoners, and particularly the Europeans, have such a different relationship with their work than we do, and such a different sensibility that vacation means vacation, and that, oh my God, you would never not take all your vacation. What's wrong with you? That I think is so much healthier. And once I spent all that time there, there was just no question coming back for me and my company, we all take the week of Christmas off, period, because it's it's humane and people need to recharge. And I'm seeing a lit, lot more of that. Um, some of the tech companies in our industry now have two different off weeks and you know, out of offices that say that. I, I think that she's right. I think, and I hope it continues. I think we do need a better paradigm and that we're shifting to it, which is important. What's next up for you, Christy? Next up is Flutter Entertainment. So this week, man, there were so many good stories. I had trouble picking them because they were so good. But this one harkens back to one of my favorite topics, which is successor liability. For those of you who don't know what that is, you 
end up, if you acquire a company that's done bad things, you end up at blame for those things in, unless you knew about them and you went to the regulators and did something about it. So Flutter Entertainment and their payments to Russian consultants. So this article comes from our friend, Michael Volkov, who we talked about earlier, and it deals with a Dublin-based gambling company called Flutter. So it, it really is a fascinating story because it has acquisitions on acquisitions that become the, the base for this challenge. So the story starts in 2014 when a company called Stars Group acquired Old Ford Group, which included the Russian operations and its Russian consultants. Star Group, of course, didn't do any due diligence on the consultant relationships. Always a bad start to a story. And once they got in into this business, the Star Group liked the Russian consultants. So they used them between 2015 and 2020. There were some serious red flags. Tom, uh, let me know if this would have uh, piqued your interest. In June 2015, one of the consultants submitted an invoice for $57,000 for reimbursement payments to a lawyer for drafting legislation for the Duma to legalize online gambling. Um, trouble. There was no record of the attorney specifically engaged, the nature of the legislation or the services provided. And the consultant sought immediate payment, noting that the legislation could be rejected if the payment wasn't made that week. The employee responsible <laughs> for reviewing the expenses approved the invoice with no further inquiries. Uh -huh. Flutter acquired Stars Group and implemented a compliance program, accounting controls, etc. However, nevertheless, they were charged with FCPA violations and they settled with the SEC for $4 million. So this is a classic case of buyer beware when it comes to acquisitions and that due diligence is necessary to find out what's going on. So Tom, what can this case tell us? What should companies be doing when it comes to pre-acquisition due diligence? And I'll let you answer that, but I have my own slight commentary, which is almost no company that I know when we review their program tends to have this in place and frequently say, well, how on earth would I do that? I start with the following. If you buy a company that was engaging in bribery corruption, you're not responsible for that. But when you take title and ownership, it is not them who are engaging in bribery and corruption. It is you who are engaging in bribery and corruption. Now, the best way, as you correctly know, to stop this is to do pre-acquisition due diligence. But if for whatever reason you don't, or you're buying a UK company and you, perhaps you can't, you have to have an incredibly robust post-acquisition investigation uh, and then turnover information. And the Halliburton opinion release, uh, colloquially known as the Halliburton opinion release because it involved Halliburton, but formerly 0808, 2000, excuse me, 0802 said, if you can't do or you don't do pre-acquisition due diligence, you better figure it out like 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And so that's an incredibly aggressive approach to have to take. But you, the acquirer, have to investigate. You have to know what these people are doing. If you do it pre-acquisition, here's the benefit. It's not simply that you have a safe harbor if you report it. It is if they're engaging in bribery and corruption and that's baked into their business model, they're not going to be as valuable to you going forward uh, because you can't use the proceeds of those contracts that you got through bribery and corruption. And so that will reduce the value to you. It should reduce the purchase price if you decide to uh, move forward with the acquisition. And from a business reason alone, you should make sure 
that you can continue to use their business model and that it's legal. So when I start to talk about some of the business reasons, then people wake up. Hopefully it's not too late, but as you said, um, most people are not thinking about this from the pre-acquisition perspective. And of course you can, you can do that pre-acquisition. You do financial due diligence pre-acquisition. Do you have enough records? No. Do you have enough time? Never, because that's the nature of acquisitions. You have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of resources. But you sit down, you interview the CCO, you interview the general counsel, you get the billing records, or excuse me, the expense records of the top five salesmen. If they have commission sales agents, you get the contracts on those commission sales agents. You get the due diligence on those commission sales agents. You match up the contracts to make sure the payments were what was agreed to under the contract. So you can do it. You can ask those questions and you can ask for those documents. And that's the way to start the process. And the department has been very clear. If you engage in pre-acquisition due diligence, even if you find something, if you stop it, and if you tell us about it, we are not going to sanction you. But if they continue to engage in bribery corruption, it ain't them, it's you. And we're going to come after you. And then we're going to go back all the way back and make you pay. So it's a pretty good incentive, I think, for businesses to use some really common business sense in this approach. I'm stealing that list of things you just rattled off and making it a blog post. So just so you know, I'll give you credit, but I'm totally taking that list that's happening. So um, one of the things that has intrigued me about our profession, Christy, is the ability of people to come in our profession because it's a relatively new profession. At first, I noticed it with the amount of women who came into our profession. And now I'm talking 05, 2010, 2015. And where doors might have been closed in other corporate disciplines, they were open in compliance because it was a new discipline. Now I see an entire new generation of people coming into the compliance profession. And they're not lawyers like us. They are other corporate disciplines. It could be people with finance degrees, people with accounting degrees, people with industrial design degrees, people with industrial organizational degrees, behavioral psychologists. I speak to a lot of college kids or graduate students, I should say, about coming into our profession who are not in law school. And I think it's a great opportunity for new blood to come into our profession, make our profession better. And so we've cited to an article which really gives some tips about how you can come into um, the compliance profession uh, really through your first job. So identifying the skills that uh, you have and you would need, looking at the sectors, network, 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 prepare for your interviews appropriately, and then gain some qualifications. And one of the ways you can get a qualification is to get a certification. If you chose to go choose to do that route, the SCCE, ECI, I think LRN and other organizations have certifications, but do something to show you're a subject matter expert. But please do not think because you don't have a law degree, you can't come into this field. And I would actually encourage non-lawyers to look at compliance because I think this is where the action's gonna be in 10 years. It's because it's already here. No, I love that. Um, you know, I wrote a book 
called How to Be a Wildly Successful in Compliance Career. And so I get a lot of these questions. People write me, they they contact me. And one of them was from the Coast Guard. He was a Coast Guard member who wanted to come into the corporate compliance world. And we did this exercise where we went through his CV and said, all right, you know, leadership skills, management skills, training. When did you write communications? Did you ever interact with third parties, et cetera, et cetera? Have you ever done any kind of investigative anything? What does that look like? Hold those words that a compliance officer hiring one would want to see. And he was hired and it was phenomenal. So I think that thinking about it through that lens, what are the words that a hiring person wants to see from a non-lawyer in particular, or even lawyers that haven't been in compliance previously? I think when you do that exercise, you absolutely can get into the career really relatively easily, which is fantastic. You looked at one one of my favorite words, and I can't wait to talk about it. I call it the metaverse, but you perhaps have an alternative term that we should debate. All right. So we, Tom and I last week, he chose, or two weeks ago, he chose an article on the metaverse and uh, with the idea that compliance officers should be investigating and paying attention to what's going on there. And I don't totally disagree, but it made me smile when I saw this one from the Wall Street Journal, almost responding to that, which is called the metaverse is quickly turning into the meh. Metaverse, M-E-H. So uh, this article was looking at whether or not the metaverse is in fact going to be terribly important, at least in the short term. Um, So basically, the main gist of it was that Walt Disney Company uh, shut down its division tasked with developing metaverse strategies. Microsoft closed its social virtual reality platform and even former Facebook now Meta's on its earning call, earnings call, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said the word AI 28 times mentioned the metaverse only seven and certainly all the articles on chat GPT, which we talked about earlier, it seems that the metaverse may not need to be watched quite as closely by compliance officers after all, at least not in the near term. I mean, Tom, if you're debating between paying attention to AI and the metaverse, what would your recommendation be? Well, my recommendation would be you need to dive into the metaverse. And it's not the metaverse (laughs) simply because Facebook and Walt Disney haven't figured out a way to corner the market and make gabillions does not mean it's not here. It's not going away. But more importantly, I guess what I got from these the article is that when you have the massive corporations sort of pulling out of an area, it creates opportunity for the solo entrepreneur or the, you know, guys that want to get together. Uh, one of my favorite stories about um, podcast recording software was two guys had gone to high school uh, and dropped out of college and said, what can we do? And, you know, they just did that. And that's what I see available even more so now in the metaverse, because I see the metaverse, as I said, the last time we talked about this as a way to create greater stakeholder engagement and anything that can create engagement is something a compliance officer should embrace. Because if we have a strategy to get our employees more engaged in doing business ethically and the right way, not following a bunch of rules uh, or compliance being Dr. No from the land of no, if we can create engagement, then we can have a more robust 
business culture, which even the Department of Justice says culture's it. If you got a good culture, you're probably not going to violate the law to start with. But it, even if you do, we're going to look with favor if you've got a, an appropriate positive culture. And then you take steps to clean up and remediate the problem if it exists. And so <clears throat> just because Facebook and Disney haven't figured out a way to do it, it, it's already there. It already exists. Somebody's going to step up and do better. And I think compliance officers need to be as aware uh, of the metaverse as I did two weeks ago. And it's just as exciting to me now as it was then. All right. Stay tuned. We shall see. So I think that brings us to the our end for this episode. Do we have any more? Uh, we do. I have to talk about Samuel Bankman-Fried and the FCPA conspiracy charges against him. I, As an aside, I don't know if you watched this, Tom, but a couple of months ago, he before he was even indicted, he did an interview from like the Bahamas about how- I watched he, it. Oh my God. Was your lawyer heart screaming? I think I actually screamed at the television. Like, what are you doing? This can be held against you. Stop. But he didn't, he didn't stop. And it has gone awry. So maybe against the statements that he did nothing wrong, we're looking at maybe he did something wrong. So here we go with Samuel Bankman Freed, frequently now known as SBF, not to confuse with all our other acronyms around here. He, of course, is the disgraced co-founder and ex-CEO of the bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX. So his story just keeps better. So this was reported by the FCPA blog. Um, so recently, he was charged with 31 counts, whoops, including conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA. He allegedly authorized and directed bribes of about 40 million in cryptocurrency to Chinese government officials back in November of 2021. And the payments were made to influence the officials to unfreeze 1 billion in cryptocurrency accounts belonging to FTX's hedge fund. So the indictment accuses SBF of stealing money to fund his venture investments, make charitable contributions, how excellent of him, and to enrich himself. Uh, so I remember when Fortune magazine ran his picture with the phrase, is this the next Warren Buffett? Turns out, no. What do you think is the craziest part of this whole situation, Tom? Wow. I'm not sure that question could be answered. Uh, <laughs> it is everything about it is crazy. I watched that interview because it was uh, done on the New York Times deal book conference and Andrew Ross, Ross Sorkin interviewed him. And you're absolutely right. I just, I couldn't believe he was saying all that, but this is as bad as everything else was. The best line I saw was the department of justice didn't come down with a hammer. They came down with Thor's hammer. Uh, because when you have a substantive FCPA violation with intent uh, approved by the company CEO, that's as absolutely as bad as it gets. And uh, at least by the allegations, that's what's alleged in the pleadings. And if they've got him on FCPA, uh, the length of time, um, potential jail time, uh, we had 15 years in the Esquinazi case. And I think that's certainly in play here. This is extraordinarily bad for SBF. I think it puts at risk his entire defense and everything else now because pretty clearly he paid a Chinese official to get something he wasn't entitled to, and he got it. 
And whether he paid in a, vir- a worthless virtual currency or not, guess what? It was something of value. I guess that's his defense. Well, you know, it really wasn't anything of value because it was just our tokens. But um, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, I was going to say the next Warren Buffett, maybe he's the next Ivan Bosky. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I didn't know that that case was going to ever get to the FCPA. I remember when it first happened, uh, one of my companies I work with said, you know, are you going to blog about this? I'm like, I can't find the right angle for this and the compliance. Oh, well, we found it. <laughs> now we've got it. It's clear. That one is going to just keep getting more and more interesting. And and so will we, hopefully, week to week as compliance keeps unfolding. Tom, thank you so much for being here, for talking about all this great stuff. I can hardly wait to do it again. Well, Tom Fox and I can't wait until we get together again. Thank you. Take care. Bye. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.